At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 39, The CIA and American Intelligence in the Early Cold War, 1945 to 1950. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. In this episode, we're going to examine the establishment of the CIA and the American intelligence community at the beginning of the Cold War. Before listening to this episode, I would recommend checking out, if you haven't already, episode 16 about the KGB and episode 24 about British intelligence in the early Cold War as a point of reference. Unlike British intelligence that worked under a royal prerogative, which operated under the extensive mandate of protecting the realm, or the KGB, which was an integral part of the Soviet apparatus, the CIA and intelligence in general in America was a much more complicated domestic affair. In the early modern era, intelligence became key to victory on the battlefield. How the British not deciphered the German enigma, or the Americans the Japanese naval code JN-25, it's debatable if the Allies would have won the Second World War. That being said, at the same time, spying and government secret programs are antithetical in many ways to free and democratic society. Yet free societies in this period depended on espionage if they wished to preserve their freedoms. Hence, intelligence during the Cold War, especially for the United States, became a complex question in which government bureaucrats and politicians walked a difficult line between protecting American interests and freedoms on the one side and violating civil liberties, human rights, and violating the law, on the other hand. Ironically, America had forged an ASEAN intelligence system under the direction of George Washington and the rest of the Founding Fathers during the American Revolution. Washington took a personal interest in recruiting and managing spies. Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson quickly learned tradecraft techniques while serving in France as American ambassadors and operated in the shadowy underworld of 18th century politics. With America's victory in 1783, the need for a spy network receded as the first generation of Americans slowly passed away. So did the skills in intelligence and tradecraft. Unlike Europe, the United States was virtually unchallenged in its westward expansion, minus the short Mexican-American War, 1846 to 1848. There was little need to develop spying skills or intelligence organizations. During the American Civil War, espionage had a quick rebirth, but again, the relative shortness of the war and lack of pure political opponents on the American continent never necessitated the need for a foreign intelligence service. America was protected by two vast oceans and by the British Navy, which valued American maritime trade and saw America as a great market for British foreign investment. Thus, the U.S. saw little need in building a large navy as long as Britain ruled the seas. By the late 19th century, America, however, especially the Navy, had a greater need for intelligence. With the closing of the West in 1890 and the publication of the influential book, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, along with the race for colonies in the late 19th century, America discovered that her Navy was wanting. 
In 1889, the United States had the 12th largest fleet in the world behind Brazil. The United States might have been a growing industrial power with a rich maritime trade, but without a navy to defend the country against foreign fleets, American merchant ships or even its coastal cities like New York, Boston, New Orleans, or San Francisco were vulnerable to destruction. Moreover, technology had become an important element of naval power. Leading great powers were building ever greater battleships with greater size, strength, and firepower. They were the nuclear weapons of their period, the most technologically advanced systems of the era. They contained the greatest amount of firepower for the age, and governments spent small fortunes on their construction and maintenance. To even be considered a great power during this period, you had to have a battleship. American naval officers observed foreign technological developments and conflicts with great attention. Nevertheless, there was no central repository for these reports. Each officer held different opinions on foreign technology and events, and they sent those opinions to to different offices within naval headquarters. Therefore, in early 1882, the Secretary of the Navy directed the creation of an Office of Naval Intelligence, or ONI, to collect and record information that would be useful to the Navy in times of peace and war. Aside from officers on ships visiting foreign ports, the Navy began to send officers to embassies to report on naval matters. ONI would then take all of these reports and publish a monthly bulletin to inform naval officers about the latest foreign news. Despite the growth of a small intelligence community, most Americans believed that spying was filthy and ungentlemanly. Yet at the time, uh, many Americans, especially those in the Navy, recognized the need for it. Nevertheless, they weren't proud of it and considered it a dirty secret. The Navy was thrilled about its performance in the Spanish-American War in 1898, in which the U.S. gained control of Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. Nonetheless, they were shocked and frightened by the success of Japan seven years later when they defeated the Russians at the Battle of Tsushima. Anti-Asian racism ran deep in California, as did fears about a Japanese invasion of the West Coast. By the outbreak of World War I, America's small intelligence community faced new challenges. The American army was small, and the Great White Fleet, which had been the envy of the world a decade ago, was now shockingly obsolete when compared with the British and German battle fleets. The American public was divided over the war. Large numbers of German immigrants to the American Midwest were sympathetic to the Germany, as were most Irish Americans who were hostile to Great Britain's policies in Ireland. Many other Americans were sympathetic with the British, who saw Britain as our cultural forebearers. Other Americans were sympathetic with the French, who had helped the U.S. win its independence, and a large Italian-American community was favorable to the Allies as well when Italy joined the war in 1915. As the war dragged on, America, with its farms and factories, became an important source of supplies, and, and both Germany and Great Britain tried hard to influence American policy. The Germans attempted to recruit spies and saboteurs, while the British tried to charm the Americans, while behind the scenes they broke America's diplomatic codes and read its diplomatic traffic. Wilson and the Americans gradually became aware of German efforts to secretly influence American newspapers, subsidize Irish and German-American organizations, and plant bombs in ships bound for Great Britain. Wilson wanted the United States to remain neutral, but he felt he couldn't ignore these acts and in late 1915 expelled German Army and Navy attachés. Relations between Germany and the United States continued to deteriorate with the sinking of the Lusitania, which resulted in the deaths of over 100 Americans. In 1916, on Black Tom Island in New York Harbor, 
Two million pounds of ammunition uh, des- destined for Russia exploded with links to German sabotage. American Assistant Secretary of the Navy Franklin Roosevelt responded by deploying Navy investigators to every port to search for German saboteurs. Many of these officers were reservists, including Sidney Sewers, uh, who would go on to become Truman's first director of central intelligence. When the U.S. entered World War I on April the 6th, 1917, the U.S. intelligence community was very small, with only a handful of naval attaches stationed around the world, an underfunded and undermanned secret service, and the Bureau of Investigations, who feuded with each other and refused to share information. The Wilson administration created a secret intelligence office known as U-1 to coordinate intelligence centrally with civilian control reporting to the president. Yet this organization with its low profile and secret status was eaten up in Washington politics. Most Americans were unaware of its existence, and when it was dismantled in 1927, the vast majority of Americans were unaware. Thus, the future CIA understood for it to survive, it would have to have a public face. In a democracy like America, without public support, it's hard for Congress to justify funding. On the other hand, many American congressmen were worried about the danger of abuses of power by the president of his secret force with access to an unpublished budget. Many congressmen were sensitive to the use of the Pinkerton detectives in labor disputes, who were basically hired thugs recruited by companies to semi-legally beat up and on occasion murder labor workers during this period. A modern equivalent would be like Walmart hiring Blackwater to deal with labor disputes. Many other congressmen were dismayed by the first Red Scare, which we spoke about in Episode 2, and Hoover's use of ONI to spy on his political opponents. Nevertheless, not all these congressmen were champions of small government and individual liberty. Many were engaged in illegal activity and didn't want to be exposed. The Secret Service had discovered that a number of congressmen had been involved in Western land fraud. Populists from middle America were also fiercely opposed to large-scale Eastern capitalists in New York and Washington. They saw the creation of such an intelligence organization as just another tool of the East Coast establishment to persecute them. By 1930, once again, American intelligence was wasting away just as other nations like the Soviet Union were enhancing their intelligence capabilities. By 1938, the Army had only 39 people in Army intelligence. ONI had 63 people at its Washington headquarters, with 17 serving as attachés worldwide. Even the State Department, who was responsible for running international affairs, had only 1,300 employees worldwide. In 1938, the U.S. was startled to discover a Nazi spy ring was operating in the U.S. The jurisdiction lines between the FBI, Army Intelligence, and the New York Police Department were so unclear that they were poorly guarded, and 14 of the 18 were actually able to escape. President Roosevelt tasked Assistant Secretary of State Adolph Burley to coordinate U.S. intelligence, but he thought intelligence was a dirty and distasteful business and did little to coordinate U.S. intelligence. Roosevelt, on the other hand, loved to hoard secrets and manipulate people. Intrigue, scattered responsibilities, and duplicated assignments provoked rivalries frustrating his cabinet who attempted to advise him on foreign policy and defense, but he loved the chaos. In running his own network, he could bypass bureaucrats. He would often dispatch his friends on secret missions overseas, deliberately passing over the State Department. One of these men was William Donovan, or a.k.a. Wild Bill Donovan. Donovan's father had immigrated from Ireland to Buffalo, New York. He had studied law at Columbia Law School and had been successful on Wall Street and had won the Medal of Honor in the First World War. 
He publicly advocated for the creation of an American intelligence agency in response to the German Gestapo, a strategy he would use again in the Cold War when he cited the existence of the KGB as a need to create the CIA. During the 1930s, he traveled extensively throughout Europe and had met Benito Mussolini. During this period, he became very close to British intelligence. He requested and received many intelligence reports from the British, which were distributed among senior Washington officials. He also pushed for intelligence collaboration between the Americans and British, which still remains in place some 70 years later. The Americans knew more about areas like Latin America and the Pacific, and the British more about Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, which complemented each other. Donovan also lobbied FDR for the creation of a new American intelligence and covert operations organization. Roosevelt's true feelings around this proposal seemed to be unclear, but in June 1941, he agreed to the establishment of this organization, the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS. Donovan became the head of the OSS, which coordinated and collected information and data to be analyzed. Donovan quickly built a research staff of distinguished university professors and other experts from the Department of Justice, elite New York law firms, Wall Street investment houses and banks, and within a few weeks, he moved his headquarters into the old medical building near George Washington University. He also requested his first budget for $10 million. His 1942 budget request was for $75 million. Donovan envisioned a large organization with many functions, although in the coming years, he would lose many bureaucratic battles to his Washington enemies, principally the, the State Department, FBI, Army, and Navy. The OSS lost control of propaganda to a new agency, the Office of War Information. He was never allowed to operate in Latin America, which the FBI considered its turf, and never gained a command or a ranger capability, which remained with the Army. Nor was it allowed to operate on U.S. soil. More importantly, signals intelligence, or the monitoring of air, airwave traffic, was outside of the control of the OSS. On the other hand, the analytical research and analysis branch of the OSS flourished. Donovan had a high regard for professors and placed them above diplomats, scientists, lawyers, and bankers. He loved to take them and their studies to the White House. Roosevelt viewed professors as neutral intellectuals free of Army, Navy, or State Department bias. This independence and impartial research would ultimately become a hallmark of the future CIA. The OSS Analysis Division didn't require training. They had perfected their analytical and writing skills and long years of graduate study programs. They did need data, however, and a worldwide network was set up to collect thousands of books, magazines, and newspapers, especially those within enemy countries. By the end of the war, OSS had accumulated some 50,000 books and 350,000 magazines. Ironically, ultra-information produced by the British from the German Enigma and U.S. Magic Signals Intelligence was not shared with the USS, nor were prisoner interrogations, mostly as a result of bureaucratic infighting. In the OSS, most researchers were either economists or historians. Historians produced area studies needed by military commanders as well as political leaders. Indeed, as a diplomatic historian myself, some of my own work reflects this tradition, such as the two uh, area studies I have done for this show, looking at episodes 10, uh, Cold War in the Mediterranean, episode 19, about the Cold War in Scandinavia. RNA economists uh, carefully studied the German economy, transportation, and industry in order to recommend strategies to strategic bombing command in order to cripple the German war effort. Historians and economists recognize that much of the data could be wrong or inaccurate and that people often seek to deceive. 
They put great store in trying to find out where exactly every fact comes from and in recording exactly how to know whether something was true. They wanted to know where the source obtained the information and whether they had been reliable in the past. They were also accustomed to building large libraries of data and organizing that data so it could be retrieved quickly. In one example, Free French Forces offered the USS, quote, super secret information about the war on the Eastern Front from a Russian source. RNA carefully watched Soviet press releases about the German forces and quickly figured out that the secret report was a copy of a recent U.S. newspaper story. This was by no means the only time spies attempted to mislead intelligence officers. Historians urged that spies in enemy high office were encouraged to either steal the original documents or take photographs of them versus trying to memorize or transcribe them. By the end of the war, RNA had grown to a staff of 1,500 in Washington, with another 450 abroad in fields offices such as London, Paris, and Stockholm, producing some 2,500 reports and studies during the war. The USS also formed a secret intelligence branch to recruit and manage foreign spies and a special operations branch to conduct sabotage and work with local resistance forces to attack the Germans, Italians, and Japanese in occupied areas. Donovan recognized that America's only clear objective was the defeat of the Axis powers, so he recruited from across the political spectrum, from communists who fought in the Spanish Civil War to Christian conservatives. This decision would come back to haunt Donovan as it was discovered in the Second Red Scare that many officers were communist with ties to Soviet intelligence, which we reviewed in episode 16. To arm and equip his officers, Donovan also formed a research and development branch under the leadership of a brilliant inventor and chemist, Stanley Lovell. Lovell's scientists created a whole new catalog of devices from knives and boots and silenced guns to clandestine radios and secret cameras. For training this new force, Donovan turned to the British. The battle-hardened British saw the Americans in many respects as naive cowboys. The British had a long history of espionage and had been learning bitter lessons in the two years of war fighting against the Germans. The British were happy enough to teach the Americans trade, craft, sabotage, and asymmetrical warfare, but they considered themselves the senior partner when it came to intelligence and tried to limit OSS activities and areas of operation. Donovan and the Americans saw things differently and suspected the British of violating their trust. Intelligence relations with the Soviets were much worse, though. The Army Intelligence Attaché, who was supposed to be exchanging information with the Soviets, was instead semi-spying on them, sending alarming reports back to Washington. OSS developed only limited links with NKVD, and by the end of 1944, almost all exchanges on German, German order of battle, the main area of intelligence cooperation, had ceased. Only in October 1943, over the objections of the U.S. Army, the USS finally got the authority to conduct the kind of independent espionage that would become the hallmark of the CIA during the Cold War. OSS covert operations operated on a global scale, from the hedgerows of France to the jungles of Burma. OSS teams parachuted into France, Norway, Yugoslavia, and elsewhere to blow up bridges and to work with partisan groups. Other teams assisted down pilots back to safety. By D-Day in 1944, OSS had 500 French agents and 400 American agents operating in occupied France alone. But the war was not all successes for the OSS. The Japanese embassy in Lisbon discovered that the OSS was attempting to steal their code books, and as a consequence, the Japanese changed their codes, which led to a blackout for American signals intelligence in the summer of 1943. In 1944, faulty intelligence led to thousands of free French troops falling into a German trap, 
on the island of Elba as a result of Donovan losing his briefcase at a cocktail party in Bucharest. Other OSS agents had been dispatched to Liberia and forgotten, and agents had been mistakenly dropped into Sweden by accident. World War II was important for the CIA in two fundamental ways. Many of its future members gained their first experience in World War II, and it shaped their thinking about issues. They tended to see things in black and white, good and evil. Democracy's fate hung in the balance against totalitarianism of Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany. In the Cold War, many would continue with this strain of thought, even though the Cold War was a very different conflict and ideologically more complicated. With the end of World War II, the United States saw large-scale demobilization as some 15 million men and women left the armed services and returned to civilian life. The U.S. military began to discharge 1.5 million troops every month and cut the defense budget by 80%. Beyond simply downsizing the military, the Truman administration sought to deconstruct the government infrastructure and agencies that had been established to fight a global conflict. The OSS would not survive the post-war world. Donovan and others had tried to convince Truman of the need for a post-war intelligence agency, but he was opposed by the Army, Navy, the State Department, and the FBI agencies with far greater clout and influence in Washington. They all knew that a return to peace would be a return to peacetime budgets. One less agency to feed would mean more money for them, so they were intent on kicking the OSS out of the nest. The Chicago Tribune also made matters worse by describing the OSS as a possible future American Gestapo. The American public had read about the horrors of Germany's secret police in Nazi Germany and feared the rise of such an organization in the U.S., Truman, as a senator, had even promised to investigate abuses by the OSS after the war. Therefore, after the war, Truman didn't want to become involved with an organization many Americans questioned the need for in a peacetime. Donovan had lobbied Truman for the continuation of the OSS after the war, but Truman couldn't stand him. He thought Donovan was egotistical and rash. Moreover, many sources in government even questioned the real value of the OSS during the war itself. Many argued that the United States should invest its unlimited funds into signals intelligence versus spending money on guys that wanted to play Dick Tracy overseas. On October 1, 1945, the OSS was dissolved. Its 1,600 researchers were sent to work at the State Department, while its 9,000 espionage and counterintelligence people went to work for Army intelligence. Donovan was dismissed from his service via a letter from the president and returned to civilian life on Wall Street. Donovan's dream of a secret U.S. intelligence service didn't end, though. Over the next two years, he leaked extensive details around OSS successes and supported a wave of OSS memoirs, magazine articles, and films, waging a PR battle for the creation of the CIA. Moreover, the peace that many assumed would prevail after the war started to crack. The Soviets tightened their grip on Eastern Europe, while the civil war in China continued. Truman was overwhelmed with all the different intelligence reports that came across his desk from the Army, Navy, State Department, and FBI. He wanted one centralized document that he could review every morning, sort of like an intelligence newspaper or what is today the president's daily intelligence briefing, which is organized by the CIA. Clark Clifford drew up an executive order creating a national intelligence authority made up of military and foreign affairs senior officials to direct a new Central Intelligence Group, or CIG, whose task it was to create the secret intelligence newspaper. Truman appointed Rear Admiral Sidney Sewers, who we spoke about earlier, as Deputy Director of Naval Operations to lead the CIG. Sewers, a reservist, was a political ally for Missouri. 
He was a wealthy businessman who had made a fortune selling life insurance and opening the nation's first supermarket chain, Piggly Wiggly's. He had close ties to Forrestal as well, as well, but wanted to return to St. Louis in civilian life now that the war was over. Like the first future director of the CIA, he was given a great responsibility with very little power. He had very little direction from Truman, and even Truman wasn't sure what his powers and duties were outside of being the editor of his classified newspaper briefing. Some argued that one of the CIG's directives was clandestine operations. If so, no documents have been found to justify this, nor do we have any records of Truman allowing this. Almost no one in government recognized the CIG's legitimacy as it had no, no authorization from Congress. The Army, Navy, FBI, and State Department refused to even speak with Sewers or his staff. Sewers lasted as director of CIG for barely 100 days before he left. The second director of CIG and the first director of the CIA was General Hoyt Vandenberg, the nephew of Senator Vandenberg from our last episode and who appeared a couple of times in the show so far. He had led Eisenhower's tactical air war in Europe. Vandenberg faced a challenging role as director of CIG. It operated out of a White House suite of three rooms and had less than 250 employees. He had no money, no authority, a very small staff, and CIG's status was legally questionable. Truman had no authority to create a federal agency out of thin air. Without the consent of Congress, CIG could not spend money, and without money in Washington, it had no power. Nonetheless, Vandenberg, who was able to convince a handful of congressmen to grant him $15 million behind closed doors to conduct espionage and subversion overseas. Despite the reorganization of the intelligence community, it was clear to many that a new agency with new capabilities would have to be organized. The Soviet Union was a closed society in many ways, more so than Nazi Germany or fascist Italy had been. The Soviet media simply did not give sufficient information on Soviet atomic plans or Soviet strategic intentions. Even FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, no friend of the OSS, wrote to the U.S. Attorney General arguing for the creation of a worldwide intelligence agency. Many in Washington were still opposed to the creation of a new agency, though. The expansion of the FBI was one plan that was put forward. The FBI had experience in intelligence working in the 1930s, both against the Nazis and communists, yet many people were again concerned with the concentration of so much power in one agency. The FBI would have been an American KJB with intelligence capabilities internationally and domestically with law enforcement abilities. Moreover, Truman and many other figures in Washington were concerned about the growth of J. Edgar Hoover's power and influence, which we will cover in a future episode. Another proposal was for the State Department to create an intelligence branch akin to how MI6 is a part of the British Foreign Ministry. The U.S. State Department, as in the past, was opposed to leading and creating such an organization. Thus, the need for a new independent agency, similar to the OSS in World War II and U1 in World War I, was recognized by most in the government. However, by this point, the whole national security infrastructure was up for debate. Truman was attempting to consolidate the Army and Navy into one department, the Department of Defense, with a new branch, the Air Force, all reporting to a joint Chiefs of Staff and a new Secretary of Defense. The Army and Navy, along with the rest of Washington, were locked in a heated bureaucratic debate. This obscured the struggle for the, from the public to organize America's intelligence community and the creation of the CIA. I want to take a quick break here and thank you again for listening. If you enjoy episodes about intelligence, espionage, and spying like this episode or episodes about the KGB and British intelligence, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter at the $5 level 
or for whatever amount you think is appropriate. Any amount is appreciated as it keeps us on the air, and Nancy Pelosi refuses to take my calls to her office to provide funds to the podcast, nor have I heard anything back from her friends at the CIA. In all seriousness, though, these episodes take about 10 to 15 hours to create on average and can cost up to $50 or more in books and references uh, to make the show, which doesn't include the cost to host the podcast or maintain the website. So again, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter if you can or making a contribution to the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. If you're tired of me interrupting this sweet episode on the CIA to hear me make corny jokes and beg for money, consider becoming a Patreon listener so that you can get access to our commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. Vandenberg testified before Congress, arguing that the National Security Act would spare the United States the humiliation of begging the British for intelligence in the next war. He contended that the United States needed a vigorous CIA to warn the United States against possible future acts of aggression, especially in light of atomic weapons. He denounced the idea that there was anything un-American about espionage. He contended that the United States was a great power, and like all great powers, required a strong intelligence network. Many in the Congress and the nation argued that the CIA would be like the Gestapo or the KGB, but CIA supporters argued that the CIA was similar to the British Secret Service or MI6. Naturally, given America's positive attitude to Britain, this was a much more favorable comparison. The surprise attack on Pearl Harbor also weighed on the hearts and minds of many. This generation was intent on not repeating the same type of intelligence mistake, and the creation of the CIA seemed like a reasonable way to prevent another such disaster in the future. U.S. intelligence had failed at Pearl Harbor in two fundamental ways. The first was that the United States lacked any type of spy network in Japan, despite the presence of a Japanese-American community they could have recruited from. The second failing was intelligence coordination and analysis. The United States had broken the Japanese diplomatic code, but only a few people had access to the intelligence. The president, FDR, received the raw intelligence without any analysis. High-ranking officials, as you can imagine, have hundreds of different issues to deal with. and could not take the time to parse through all the intelligence that they received and come to the conclusion that a Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor was imminent. The weakness of the British Empire in 1947 also scared many in government. The British had surrendered India to what appeared to be virtual chaos, and it had told the Americans it could no longer shoulder the security of Greece and Turkey alone. Meanwhile, the British control of Palestine was slipping as terrorist attacks escalated there. Many in Washington questioned the wisdom of continuing to rely on British intelligence with their empire in shambles. With the signing of the National Security Act, the CIA came into being with a deliberately vague charter, but a clear prohibition from domestic spying that would ward off the fears of an American Gestapo. Additionally, the CIA, like the OSS, would not be in charge of signals intelligence, but the NSA, which we will cover in the next episode. Nevertheless, the CIA was an independent agency reporting directly to the president. Truman didn't want too much power invested into any one agency and feared that the United States might inadvertently become a police state, so he split America's intelligence capabilities and authorities. Military intelligence would continue to collect military intelligence for the respective branches. The CIA would analyze intelligence, run human assets or spies, and covert operations. The NSA would monitor signals intelligence, and the FBI would deal with domestic affairs and counterintelligence, surrendering its assets in Latin America to the CIA. 
Splitting the power and authority of America's intelligence community also created divisions and rivalries between the different agencies in the military, which lasted throughout the Cold War, despite cooperation on many projects and objectives. The Army and FBI, for instance, didn't share Viona intelligence with the CIA or Navy. If you recall from Episode 16, uh, Viona was the U.S. Uh, uh, program or project which cracked the Soviet diplomatic code. The CIA would have to build a global intelligence network from scratch against a highly sophisticated and seasoned opponent, the KGB. Moreover, only a handful of CIA officers spoke Russian or had any real background in regards to Soviet society, culture, or history. The Navy and ONI had an influence in the creation of the CIA, writing a number of policy papers that guided the formation of the organization. In its early years, it was composed of many of the same people who had served in the OSS. Four directors of the CIA had served in the OSS. In 1954, 14 of the 35 senior positions were filled by men who had served in the OSS. Those that had not served in the OSS were recruited from the American East Coast establishment, coming from either Yale, Harvard, or Wall Street, plus a small contingent of FBI agents who served in Latin America and had been transferred to the CIA. As a result of this, the CIA took on the era of an old boys club. The CIA moved out of the White House suite and into the old offices of the OSS. Its budget grew by 60%, and it added hundreds of personnel. The CIA also received a new director within a few months of its creation, Rear Admiral Roscoe Hillencutter, uh, nicknamed Hilly. During the World War II, he had served with Navy intelligence and had served as a naval attache in the 1930s. While this bureaucratic battle about the future of U.S. intelligence raged in Washington, the political situation in the rest of the world remained volatile, and the relationship between the Western Allies and the Soviet Union was quickly deteriorating. If you recall George Kennan's long telegram uh, from Episode 8, the United States wished to avoid direct military confrontation with the Soviet Union, but wanted to contain the advance of communism through international aid and military commitments to strategic locations. Kennan became a leading advocate of the use of covert operations at halting the spread of communism, although in later years he abandoned this position. This was seen as a less dangerous alternative to the use of U.S. military force, which could spark an unintentional war. Moreover, if the secret operation came to light, the U.S. government could deny any responsibility or involvement. It was also much cheaper than a conventional military buildup the generals and admirals were arguing for. This move also inflamed the rivalry between military intelligence and the CIA. Many in Congress believed the Army, Navy, and Air Force were exaggerating Soviet strengths and capabilities in order to justify appropriations for their respective weapon systems like tanks, ships, and bombers, and civilian-dominated CIA seemed to be an objective answer to this problem. Many in Congress wanted the CIA to receive the raw intelligence findings from the military, but the military fought hard to retain their independence. They might have accepted the existence of a civilian intelligence agency, but they were not going to surrender to his oversight. Nevertheless, covert operations soon overtook information collection and analysis as the main focus of the CIA, with the most agents, the most money, and the most power for the next 20 years. It was much easier to plot a coup in a third world country or blackmail a politician than it was to penetrate the Politburo. Nevertheless, covert operations and espionage, which were headed by different heads, often feuded over personnel and resources. The CIA's ability to conduct covert operations was questionable. 
No such language appeared in the uh, National Security Act of 1947 granting such authority, nor any euphemisms such as uh, paramilitary operations or clandestine operations. The CIA's tasks were delineated as advising the NSC on intelligence, producing intelligence reports, and performing additional services of common concern and such other functions and duties related to intelligence affecting national security. That last part about additional services is where the CIA legally justified its ability to conduct covert operations. But even in 1947, the CIA's legal counsel told Hilly the National Security Act failed to give the CIA the required legal authority to conduct covert operations. The U.S. faced a very efficient and experienced adversary in the KGB and Soviet intelligence, as I mentioned earlier. Nevertheless, American strategic planners and politicians were desperate for accurate information about Soviet capabilities and objectives. The memory of Pearl Harbor was still fresh in the memory of many Americans. At the beginning of the Cold War, the CIA, like the rest of U.S. intelligence, had very few sources of information from within the Soviet Union. The United States was extremely interested in Soviet intentions and capabilities around building an atomic bomb. U.S. intelligence was pretty sure that the Soviets would develop the bomb. The only question was how long would it take? One of Hilly's first acts as director was to establish techniques for detecting atomic explosions, and flights to collect air samples around the perimeter of the Soviet Union began to take place. But this was a tripwire to Soviet atomic research, not actual intelligence about their policies and programs in building an atomic bomb. Other than the information British intelligence shared with the Americans, the U.S. had three primary sources of intelligence, defectors, ex-Nazis, and Viona, and the CIA didn't even know of Viona's existence, let alone have access to it. Defectors, or Soviets that had aided the Germans during the war and who fell into their custody, or Soviet soldiers that defected to the West, were one source of information. OSS and the U.S. Army had initially focused on denazification, but quickly transitioned to gathering information from Red Army defectors. There were some dangers with this, as it was hard to tell if they were double agents or if Soviet plants to feed false information. Nor could they verify much of what was shared with them. Another source of information was ex-Nazis. In World War II, the United States made common cause with communists to fight fascists and Nazis. In the Cold War, the United States worked with Nazis and fascists to fight against the communists. The Americans worked with the notorious Nazis such as Werner von Braun and Klaus Barbie, the Butcher of Lyon, along with many others located in uh, POW camps. As they said later in the CIA, a pact with the devil is good if it may help to save heaven. Indeed, the CIA developed a whole program to exploit German prisoners called Project Bloodstone, in which the U.S. spent $5 million to employ known Nazis. Operation Paperclip uh, successfully focused on the recruitment of Nazi scientists, which were brought back to the U.S. to continue their work, despite crimes that they may have committed under the Nazis. The CIA even had U.S. immigration laws altered to allow them to bring up to 120 foreigners a year into the United States for national security reasons. Thus, one of the early missions of U.S. intelligence was locating German scientists and officials and classified German documents before the Soviets did. These scientists, ex-officials, and documents held great technological, political, and economic secrets that would benefit U.S. scientific and economic development. German political knowledge, especially in reference to the Soviet Union, was also extremely valuable. 
1946, U.S. Army intelligence stole a cache of German documents from Czechoslovakia, and the Czechs closed the border to American travelers. In the end, the American ambassador in Prague had to apologize about the whole affair. One of the earliest and most valuable sources of information to the Americans on the Soviets was the Gelen uh, Organization, uh, or what became Operation Rusty. Beginning in 1943, many senior German intelligence officers believed that the war was lost and Germany defeated. Army Major General uh, Reinhard Gelen uh, nonetheless correctly believed that the post-war world would witness a contest of strength between the Western powers and the Soviet Union. Therefore, he sought to save and hit, hide as many Soviet intelligence files and experts as he could in order to offer these resources to the West once the new struggle began. Without informing the president, OSS, or even Eisenhower, Army Intelligence created Operation Rusty to use Galen's uh, organization and expertise to gather as much intelligence as possible around the Red Army, its organization, and operation. Not everyone in Washington was comfortable working with the Galen organization, given their Nazi backgrounds. Hilly, the head of the CIA, even suggested the organization be disbanded, but the hunger for intelligence remained too great. To fund the operation, Army Intelligence paid Galen's experts in cigarettes, candy bars, and stockings, all valuable items in the German black market at the time. The collection effort against the Soviets was called Operation Grail, and David Murphy, the later CIA chief of Berlin, led the operation. Germans were recruited to spy on the Soviets, and some Americans, uh, 250, worked on this effort. Because of the poor Western security and very effective Soviet counterintelligence, most were caught and sent to the Soviet Gulag before being freed in 1955, when the Soviets finally returned all the remaining G German POWs. Many of the German spies that worked for the Americans were kidnapped right off the street without a trace. In 1946 alone, some 245 were kidnapped. In Berlin, the Americans were simply outnumbered and outgunned. With only 40 officers and support personnel, the Berlin base produced some 5,000 reports in 1947. Nonetheless, many of these reports were of little value. Daily bulletins such as, quote, Drunken officer boasts that Russia will attack West without warning, close quote, and, so, quote, Soviet commander toasts the coming fall of Istanbul, close quote, were mixed with legitimate reports that filtered up to the chain of command. Vandenberg dispatched Richard Helms, a former OSS member and future director of the CIA under Nixon, to head up the intelligence operation in Europe. Helms quickly came to the conclusion that about half of the reports coming out of Berlin and Vienna were fake. He increased emphasis on quality over quantity, and report levels fell to 200 a month. However, the decline was partially also a reflection of Soviet counterintelligence, which is arresting American agents at an alarming rate. Nevertheless, the Americans were able to produce a weekly Soviet military report on Red Army capabilities in Germany. It was also able to recruit East German policemen and politicians. Some of their agents in East Germany were even able to work at low-level uh, Soviet sources for information. One Soviet officer was paid in salted peanuts. The CIA also recruited a teletypist at Berlin Police Headquarters who has also developed her sister as a source who was the mistress of a police lieutenant that worked with the Soviets. This information proved vital in understanding that the Soviets weren't prepared to invade East Berlin during the Berlin blockade. Vienna, like Berlin, also proved to be another city for intelligence gathering in the early Cold War. Like Berlin, it was administered by the victorious Allied powers. Moreover, it was a good location for operations in Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Hungary, all of which were a short distance away. 
U.S. Army intelligence developed an elaborate system to identify and interrogate Soviet defectors and Eastern European refugees. Many of these refugees had valuable insights and information about conditions in Eastern Europe and were willing to share this information with U.S. intelligence officers. The CIA wanted to recruit these refugees as agents to develop resistance movements back home and to develop uh, systems to rescue downed American and British pilots in the event of a Third World War. They also wanted these resistance fighters to capture a Soviet fighter plane and sabotage Soviet runways. However, despite the hundreds of thousands of refugees, it was difficult to find recruits willing to go back to Eastern Europe. With the onset of the Berlin blockade in 1948, the U.S. attempted to recruit and train stay-behind sabotage units to remain in areas that would be occupied in the event of a Soviet invasion of West Germany. These units would attack Soviet rear areas. The U.S. buried radios, weapons, and gold coins to be used by these partisans. As late as the 1990s, farmers in Germany and Austria were still occasionally discovering these caches. The Joint Chiefs of Staff also directed Vandenberg to disrupt Soviet supply lines, which ran through Romania, and Vandenberg asked for an additional $10 million in secret funds to mount operations, uh, which the military supplied. Thus, Vandenberg's Office of Special Operations within CIG set out to create an underground resistance movement in Romania. The Americans attempted to work with the National Peasant Party, offering guns, money, and intelligence. Nevertheless, it took the KGB and Romanian secret police only a few weeks to discover the plan. The Americans had to evacuate, and the Romanian Peasant Party was crushed. In Czechoslovakia, the CIA smuggled some 30 high-ranking officials out of the country in the wake of the communist coup and crackdown. The CIA also worked with Ukrainian partisans led by Mykolo Lebed, a wanted war criminal by the Justice Department who had fought with the Germans in World War II, executing Ukrainians, Poles, and Jews. Eventually, Alan Dulles wrote the Justice Department uh, on his behalf and had the charges dropped. The U.S. and the British were marginally supportive of the Ukrainian resistance movement, but by the time they had come around to the idea of helping the Ukrainian resistance, it was on its last legs. That said, the U.S. and British had been impressed with German efforts during World War II to recruit Ukrainians to, to their side, and in the early war, years of the Cold War, the U.S. Air Force removed Ukrainian cities from its list of targets as it was assumed they might rise up against the Soviets in the event of a Third World War. The CIA dispatched dozens of Ukrainian agents by air, land, and sea, but they were all captured and used to feed false information back to Washington. The more men they sent, the more were killed, and after five years of failed attempts, the CIA closed down the operation. The agency tried a similar approach in Russia, too, dropping agents from unmarked planes, but these two were arrested one by one. In the end, hundreds of agents were sent to their deaths in Russia, Poland, Romania, Ukraine, and the Baltic states during the 1950s. The CIA also organized a psychological warfare campaign to drop jokes to the Soviets via balloons. They also dropped Western manufactured goods and huge-sized condoms labeled medium as an attempt to create penis envy, all as an effort to demoralize the Soviet population. Indeed, the plans became so outlandish that the director himself threatened to close down the operation. CIA also launched some of its first operations in France and Italy as well during the early Cold War. It should be noted that Congress never green-lighted these missions, so the legality of the operations was questionable. To pay for these operations, the money was laundered through the Marshall Plan, some $685 million in all, out of the $13.7 billion in the plan. This, of course, didn't come to light until the after the Cold War. 
The money was used to set up front groups and dummy corporations to confront the Soviet-sponsored communist front groups throughout Europe. These front groups disseminated propaganda and recruited foreign agents who worked with U.S. intelligence. Immigrants and former refugees from Eastern Europe were especially sought as they would be recruited and trained and sent back to their country of origin to organize resistance movements. As we saw in past episodes, the Communist Party in France and Italy was strong and supported from Moscow. They were both using newspapers and propaganda to win popular support. Donovan and Ellen Dulles, uh, another former OSS member and future director of the CIA, had lobbied rich Americans to donate print to print uh, pro-American democracy and capitalism pamphlets, and the American Federation of Labor was also assisting in anti-communist labor movements in France. But Donovan warned Forrestal more would have to be done. The CIA stepped in with cash for propaganda. The agency also allegedly used its links with the Corsican organized crime in Marseille. It reportedly provided arms that were used against local communists. Several strikers were murdered in Marseille before the collapse of the communist-led general strike there. If the CIA was involved, it was a harbinger of things to come. Throughout the Cold War, the CIA uh, cultivated links with the criminal underworld. Indeed, the OSS had worked with the Italian mafia during World War II, so such an operation had precedence. Nevertheless, the evidence seems to suggest that the emphasis in 1947-1948 was on covert propaganda. The CIA also launched one of its first PSYOP operation missions in France in which short subliminal messages were inserted into French films supplied under the auspices of the Marshall Plan. In Italy, as we saw in episode 10, the CIA feared the communists would win the general election in 1948. The NSC declared Italy essential to America's national security. If Italy went communist, it would threaten Allied control of the Mediterranean and could impair oil shipments from the Middle East to Europe. By early 1948, the CIA began to subsidize center-right Italian political parties, activate their mafia connections from OSS days, and influence public opinion through uh, forgeries, campaign posters, ads, leaflets, media plants, rallies, and other propaganda. Funds were also dispersed to anti-communist labor unions, corporations, Catholic groups, and the right-wing Catholic Action Group. With the communist defeat at the polls, the operation was seen as a major success. Nonetheless, it's hard to tell what effect, if any, CIA efforts had. If you recall, the Catholic Church, a very powerful force at the time, had come out in favor of the center-right parties. Marshall Plan funds and American loans helped to shore up the Italian economy. Many ex-fascist officials were still in positions of authority. Uh, The mafia was very influential in southern Italy as well and not a fan of the communists. And many Italians were not favorable to the ideas of a centralized planned economy, as the fascist economy of the 1940s had been a disaster. If you recall from episode 24, the British and Americans also attempted to topple the communist regime in Albania. Albania was viewed as an easy target, far from Moscow, and not sharing a border with the Soviet Union, especially after the Tito-Stalin split. The move was also seen as a defensive move to bar Soviet access to the Adriatic ports and the Mediterranean. Unsuccessfully, the CIA supplied funding to the British operation to recruit and train Albanian nationalists to land in Albania and liberate the nation. These forces were quickly discovered and fought off due to an intelligence failure in MI6. If you're interested in learning more, I would recommend checking out episode 24. The CIA, also unannounced to the British, attempted to overthrow the government of Tito in Yugoslavia. 
The CIA infiltrated right-wing exiles back into Yugoslavia, mostly Serb Chetniks. Uh, for unclear reasons, they were clothed in U.S. Air Force uniforms and thus were easily rounded up by Tito's security forces. By 1948, Director Hilly told members of Congress that the fledgling CIA was overwhelmed and he needed to spend uh, funds outside of normal congressional oversight. The Senate unanimously agreed with only four House members voting against the spending. Congress was willing to finance the CIA's budgets of 40 to 50 million because it appeared to be a relatively cheap way to fight the Cold War. Rather than the massive, uh, increasingly costly new weapons and planes the military wanted, there was a remarkably bipartisan consensus and support for the CIA. Most senators didn't want to know the details. Congress deferred the, to a small group of powerful senators. In 1949, secret CIA funds set up Radio Free Europe, although ostensibly a uh, private company, but in reality a CIA front company. It beamed propaganda into Eastern Europe. Starting in 1950, another front company, Radio Liberty, broadcast into the Soviet Union itself. CIA-funded radio companies complemented the State Department's openly-funded Voice of America radio in a massive program. Meanwhile, the CIA also continued to finance leaders throughout Europe that made anti-communist stances. The KGB was keenly aware of the dangers of these radio broadcastings and began to jam Western radio frequencies. The Americans responded by saturation broadcasting in which a series of increasingly powerful radio transmitters in different locations beamed the same programs into Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union simultaneously on varied frequencies. The CIA wasn't just focused on Europe, though. In Colombia, it had warned the State Department of a possible riot that might affect Marshall's visit to the region. The reports were ignored, and when the riots manifested themselves, the State Department tried to shift the blame to the CIA. The CIA and congressional hearings, though, provided Congress with copies of the warnings that they had sent to the State Department. This event was a watershed for the CIA. They found it demoralizing that even when they succeeded, their efforts could be portrayed as a failure. They also saw how the agency could be made into a political football. Dewey, the Republican candidate for president in the 1948 elections, exploited the so-called failure against the Truman administration. Marshall refused to admit that he had been warned because it would reflect negatively on the administration of the upcoming election. The CIA was also concerned about the political instability in the Philippines. American arms dealers were, were illegally or extra-legally shipping arms to Europe, the Middle East, and Latin America. These arms were fueling many of the colonial struggles we reviewed in past episodes. They were also worried about Nicaragua's Anastasio Somoza, who had stepped down from leadership of his country to orchestrate an invasion of Costa Rica. The CIA also closely followed the civil war in China and predicted in December 1948 that Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang would be defeated by Mao and the Chinese Communist Party. The CIA also began to acquire airfields around the world in order to increase its covert and paramilitary capabilities. General Chenault of the Flying Tigers fame had created the Civil Air Transport Service in 1945 and began to assist the Kuomintang and the French in Indochina with logistical support to stop the spread of communism. In 1949, the CIA bought the company, the first of many small airlines that the CIA would own and operate. If you recall, CAT assisted the French at Dan Bien Phu. They also pilfered aircraft, arms, ammunition, parachutes, and surplus uniforms from the Pentagon and its bases in Europe and Asia. 
They soon controlled a stockpile worth $250 million of surplus military equipment for covert operations. By 1948, the Army also assigned a special operations warfare advisor to the CIA to help them train operatives in guerrilla warfare at Fort Benning, Georgia. Despite the CIA's early accomplishments, many felt that they were still failing to meet the Soviet menace. In 1948, Forrestal, the Secretary of Defense, directed Alan Dulles to run a secret investigation into the structural weaknesses of the CIA. Dulles's report, which remained classified for 50 years, declared that the CIA was a failure. He argued that the CIA was creating reports with little factual basis. Second, the CIA had no spies within the Soviet Union or Eastern Europe. Moreover, Hilly, he argued, was an inept failure. If things didn't change soon, America faced a disaster abroad, he warned. However, Dulles wasn't the most objective figure in Washington. He wanted Hilly's job, and both he and Forrestal believed that they could have leading roles in the new administration of Dewey, but as we saw in episode 12, Dewey lost. In the end, Forrestal found himself in a mental institution, and Alan uh, Dulles would have to wait until the election of Eisenhower in 1952. One of the early failures of the U.S. and CIA intelligence in general was the Soviet detonation of an atomic bomb. When the U.S. government first learned of the detonation in late 1949, the CIA, along with the rest of the government, had been caught by surprise. They had assumed it would take the Soviets many years to develop such a weapon. The CIA had predicted that the Soviets wouldn't be able to detonate a device until 1951. American intelligence through the Galen organization had tried to block Soviet access to German scientists who might assist with the project. They also knew of the uranium mines in Saxony, but beyond that, they knew of little of what was actually happening with the project within the Soviet Union. In all practical terms, it was probably impossible to penetrate the Soviet nuclear program in the late 1940s, given the security and secrecy of Stalin's Soviet Union. As we have seen, even getting agents into the Soviet Union was an almost impossible task. Nevertheless, during this period, the CIA was accused of harboring Soviet spies. In retrospect, it's true that the CIA had been compromised via some of its former OSS members in its connection with MI6 and the Cambridge Five. Nonetheless, Joseph McCarthy's accusations that the CIA was harboring, harboring Soviet spies were reckless attacks without the facts to back up his accusations. For several years, these allegations haunted the CIA, CIA along with the State Department until McCarthy, through his drunkenness and overreaching, finally destroyed himself. Hilly attempted to placate McCarthy, uh, saying that they were investigating the matter, and McCarthy backed off for a time but was enraged when he discovered that homosexuals were working for the CIA. Hilly, who had fought for the rights of African Americans in the Navy, stepped forward to defend the accused defendant in a secret 1950 congressional hearing. Hilly argued that it was necessary to use homosexuals in field operations to use sexual entrapment to blackmail victims into spying. After all, Hilly told members of the committee, intelligence at its best is an extremely dirty business. Congress accepted this explanation and allowed the CIA to continue to the employment of homosexual members. One of the biggest successes of the CIA, which was virtually ignored within the government, was the Soviet support for North Korea. Although it was extremely hard to know what was happening in North Korea, the CIA knew since 1946 that Soviet forces had been building up the North Korean army. In the spring of 1950, the CIA reported that the steady buildup of North Korean forces and continuing North Korean raids into South Korea. The White House and the state once again accused the CIA of not providing accurate warning, 
But the CIA argued that although they had not provided an exact date for the invasion, the president and state were well aware of the North Korean military buildup and its raids across the border. Nevertheless, Truman decided it was time for Hilly to go. Someone had to take the fall for the Soviet atomic bomb and the surprise invasion of South Korea, and it wasn't going to be the president. On another note, it had been difficult for Hilly in his role as director of the CIA as he was outranked by all of his peers. He was only a two-star admiral, whereas many of the agency heads were three- or four-star admirals and generals. Even when Beetle Smith became head of the CIA, General Omar Bradley didn't want to give him a fourth star. Truman had refused to promote any generals until Bradley reluctantly gave Smith his fourth star, making him equal to the service chiefs and senior to every military intelligence chief. General Beetle Smith had started as a private in the Indiana National Guard and worked his way up to the rank of, uh, of general. In World War II, he worked as chief of staff to Eisenhower. Smith had become an adept bureaucratic, uh, dealing with the Allies and the different agencies within the U.S. government. After the war, Truman appointed him as U.S. ambassador to Russia. Suffering from ulcers and unable to eat a normal diet, Smith was said to have a temper and always angry. While in Russia, Smith worked with George Kennan and was influenced by his ideas around containment. In conclusion, the first few years of the Cold War, it was clear to see that the CIA was outclassed by the KGB. Despite their experiences in World War II, they were clearly amateurs facing off against seasoned professionals. The CIA did have some success, but they clearly struggled through the period of the early Cold War, and not just in the streets of Berlin and Eastern Europe. In Washington, they were novices to the world of Washington politics, facing off against seasoned opponents like the military, FBI, and State Department, who were battling for influence and money on Capitol Hill and the halls of the White House. The efforts of the CIA in the early Cold War clearly added pressure to the Soviet Union, but other than helping to contain the Soviet Union, Many of these moves exacerbated an already tense political situation. CIA clandestine spies and contacts throughout Eastern Europe, coupled with its psychological operations, probably encouraged Stalin's paranoia and conflict-driven worldview, which encouraged him to clamp down in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union and rearm for war. On the other hand, operations in East Germany, France, and Italy helped to blunt Soviet moves to advance their influence in Western Europe. This is the first of a few episodes about the CIA that I will be making through the course of the, of the show. Next episode, I will be examining the origins of the NSA and signals intelligence during the early Cold War. So tune in for our next episode. I want to, as always, thank our Patreon contributors for making this show possible. If you like this show or any of our past episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. If you don't have a lot of friends in the history and you are already a contributor but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out the pictures for this episode, ask questions or donate to the podcast, check out our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well, there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show.
At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.